You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny again from the Sectarian Review Podcast, welcoming you to another episode. Uh, joining me today is going to be C. Derek Varn with our third episode on what we're calling keywords. And those have been a lot of fun. They've been mostly focused on kind of words that have been thrown around the liberal um, Twitter sphere. But today we're going to focus on uh, a, an almost an entirely conservative uh, keyword that comes kind of out of a conspiracy theory uh, called cultural Marxism. I know that we haven't, for some weird reason on this show, not talked about Jordan Peterson yet, uh, and we'll probably find a way to work him in uh, to this episode uh, today with Derek. Uh, before I turn it over to him, though, I do have an iTunes review. Uh, I've been always begging for these things, and uh, I want to kind of uh, give a shout out to Iowa Gore for leaving us a nice review. Danny, I've been listening to your podcast since the first episode, and Finally feeling guilty hearing your frequent requests to rate it. Here I, here I am. I am an older guy, 64, and your topics are and thoughtful discussions open me up to so many things in contemporary culture I otherwise would not pay much attention to. Horror, conspiracy theories, etc. All the weird things you love to talk about. The episode concerning black evangelicals leaving white churches lifted the show to a whole new level. It was amazing and provoking conversation that demands multiple uh, listening. Thank you. Please keep up the fabulous work. Uh, I really appreciate the the iTunes review, and it's uh, I'm happy you like that um, particular episode, Iowa Gore, because that is also one of my favorites as well. Tamara did a great job on that show, and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to her. Um, if you have some feedback for me or for the show, iTunes is a great place to help other people find the show, so leaving it there would be great. Um, also Facebook and Twitter and our website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Um, plenty of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, I don't want to waste much time though. Um, Derek has recorded hours and hours and hours about this topic in the past and I'm going to do my best to keep him at our hour and 15 minute, um, <laughs> goal. Uh, I don't know how it's going to happen. Derek, how you doing, man? I'm okay. Uh, any, uh, any trepidation about jumping into the cultural Marxism? Uh, topic again yeah this one this one's tough because the backstory to this a little bit i mentioned it before i i was asked to cover this topic years and years ago um because i had the i I had mentioned that there was a rational kernel to the otherwise bat guano insane theory of cultural marxism (laughs) um and when i started to uh do this series on this with my f- friend and uh, fellow podcaster, Amog uh, Sahu, um, on Symptomatic Redness before it was associated with with zero books again. Um, I found myself uh, going down a long pathway. Um, you know, I'm one of the leftists who spends uh, not a huge amount of time anymore, but at one point in my life, a whole lot of time reading um, right-wing, conventional, normal, and far-right material. Um, 
in the idea that, uh, that you have to actually understand the mindset of the people you oppose. And um, so I'd known about this. And when I started really going down this rabbit hole into what the various different conspiracy groups used it for, the, the things that they hit on that were sort of kind of true, um, I ended up recording a series of like, well, it was, it ended up being four podcasts of which we released only one. Um, and it was like seven hours long and we cut it down to like four. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's a little bit daunting. Yeah, dear listener, we won't put you through that tonight. Uh, this is going to be, uh, uh, a, a Cliff's Notes version, if you will. And I do think though, that it's an interesting one. This is a term that gets thrown out, um, pretty rapidly. And with the increasing popularity of Jordan Peterson among Christians, I think, and though he is kind of backed off of using this term, he is someone who is, has dived in, has dove into this uh, pool before. And, uh, and I think it's an interesting uh, background for people who are willing to kind of adopt Jordan Peterson as a uh, a nascent Christian, uh, a Christian thinker at least, and so I think this will give some uh, good background for a lot of folks. Um, so uh, before we get to that, though, back a couple months ago, several months ago, Derek was on the show uh, in a really popular show that we did about um, the late Mark Fisher and his essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, which Derek had helped to sort of commission and wrote a, a really good response to himself. Um, and on that webpage, on the, the show notes for the webpage for that episode, I got a, a comment from Jesse M. a while ago, actually, and I'm just now getting this to Derek. Um, and he actually wanted some follow-up about one issue, and it's probably not unrelated here. Um uh, did Fisher say in an interview that the reason he didn't consider himself a Marxist was because he held class identity sacred and didn't want to abolish class, as you describe his position around 46 minutes in? It seems like he's arguing against treating class as an identity to pre be preserved in his 2006 post on, on K-Punk. Um, and here's the quote. The disaster of cultural studies lay in its ethnicizing of the, quote, working class. In its payons to the, quote, dignity of working class life, its celebrations of the micro resistances supposedly demonstrated by, quote, subversively watching soap operas and such. Uh, what cultural studies did, in other words, was to assimilate Marxism into identity politics. That move totally undermined the basis of Marxism, which would be better described as disidentity politics. This is not to suggest that Marxism entails the empirical destruction of identities and ethnicities. It is to say that for Marxism, collectivity is organized on the basis of an indifference to difference. Um, this is a quote from Fisher in 2006 and something that he um, he wrote. And Derek, do you have a response to that? Uh, yeah, although it is it is weirdly directly relevant to some things I'm actually going to get into today about yeah. cultural studies. <laughs> I think it's um, good that we held on to this one, actually. Um, but my response to that is that I don't know that Fisher was entirely consistent. The, 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 what I didn't mean to imply is that he held class identity sacred and, and, and for that reason didn't want to abolish it. What I, what I thought, however, is he did not think cl class identity could be reduced to what you did in labor, which makes abolishing it much more difficult. So while he – in 
in delusion terms, because Fisher was more of a delusion than a Marxist, um, he was using Marx's categories to talk about class abolition. But when you pressed him on what he thought class was, he did not agree with Marxists. Like, he would see himself as from the working class, where a Marxist would not necessarily view him as from the working class. Because of his, right. um, he had sort of transcended it by the nature of his actual job. Right. Because, yeah. you know, and, and particularly by the time that we're talking about 2011, 2012, 2013, he's not just like a, a, a professor, which is arguably maybe part of the working class because the professor still is a wage earner um, and has some, albeit very indirect relationship to commodity production. Um, but... He is a petite bourgeois because he's selling his means and he owns the means in which to sell. Mm. Um, and I don't say that to d- disparage Fisher. A lot of times Marxists will use that as an insult. I don't mean it that way at all. Um, and I will mention the specific interview so people can go and check it out uh, that I was referring to. Now, um, before there was zero books, before Doug and I even worked for zero books, we collaborated off and on on his podcast, Diet Soap. Um, Diet Soap um, episode 198 is one of the later ones, so it's still available online. A lot of the earlier ones, like my first appearance on Diet Soap, are no longer uh, findable. <laughs> They're not archived yet. Um, but this one is available on DouglasLane.net. Um, and it is The Joy Beyond Identity, and it was released in December of 2013, about a month after The Vampire Castle. Hmm. was viewed if you listen to the episode he says he 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 rejects the marxist theory of of class because it's overly reductionist and and ignores the way childhood origins and stuff play into identity okay now that does not mean that he thinks that like that working class identity is too sacred to be abolished that's not what i think he means and i hope i didn't make it sound like that although clearly someone took it as that um i'd have to go back and listen to the interview again to get exactly my wording but that he his his notion of class is is nebulous and so even if he thought class is to be abolished how you would do it with a with an origins theory of class like that um, that also has to do with income and whatnot, not so much your role in the product in the production force would be very hard for me to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and his delusion background would be important here because Deleuze talks about philosophical concepts as tools where you can mix and match them for any given problem it, it, with no regard for an overall coherence. Okay. All right. Um, if you know the, the the critical theory toolbox, it was if you went through like a, a literary theory course in the in the late '90s to probably about six years ago, you would have gotten this theory that you know you you use a a lens to talk about a text to bring out new things in the text because you you use philosophical ideas kind of pragmatically to bring stuff out. Um, Marxists would reject this, you know. I, you can't mix and match paradigms and everything makes sense because everything is dependent on everything else. Okay. 
Fair so. enough. Fair enough. Thank, thank you for that. Um, thanks for the comment, by the way, on the website. Um, every it's night. a very smart comment. I'm glad they made it. Yeah. Um, and I will put a link. Um, I'll, I'll try and dig up that episode that you're describing on douglaslane.net um, from uh, Diet Soap. And um, if I can find it, I'll put a link on the show notes for this show. Uh, and by all means, uh, give us feedback on these things. Derek is a, a great friend of the show, and uh, I'm sure he'll be back sometime in the future to talk about something else. So uh, he'll be glad to follow up on anything. So um, let's, uh, it's a, like you said, it's not an unrelated topic. Uh, anyway, to what we're going to be talking about tonight, this idea of cultural Marxism, um, which um, comes out as sort of a slur uh, from uh, people on the right about kind of progressive ideals uh, infiltrating and trying to undermine um, society. And Jordan Peterson is, a, uh, though he may have stopped using that term himself, he is the person that kind of introduced it to me. And so um, I am interested in his role in all of this, but it goes way back before that. And it kind of uh, lets us talk a little bit about the Frankfurt School and whatnot. But um, Derek, do you want to go ahead and give us your little uh, etymology here of, uh, of uh, cultural Marxism? Oh, okay. So... Man, so you want me to start off on the legit? Yeah, yeah. Theory of cultural Marxism. Okay, so because that's like a that's a theme in all of these keywords episodes. Something starts off as legitimate and then gets sort of transmutated. Well, here's the thing <laughs> with this cultural Marxism stuff: the fact that there's a legitimate thing it refers to is not where the term actually really finds its origins which is going to make this really difficult to parse out. Okay. So, so for example, cultural Marxism um, was referred to, uh, to a bunch of uh, Frankfurt School, particularly Adorno and Horkheimer and Marcuse, who talked about um, culture being imposed by a culture, by the, a mass industry, which we'll call the capitalist culture industry, and consumed by the masses, its um, regularity, its regularity and conformity being very similar to fascism, according to the Frankfurt School. There is a concurrent development in Italy out of out of the prison notebooks of late Antonio Gramsci. Uh, of the late Antonio Gramsci. I mean, everybody's late now. I don't know why I said that. But the soon-to-be-dead when he wrote it. Uh, late period Antonio Gramsci. Um, it, where he starts picking up on a theory of Lenin that you have to understand cult the cultures of each class and the way they intersect and the cultures they overall produce and the hegemony in which they come out of. Now... The first postmodernist, and, and we'll come back to Jordan Peterson because even the right wingers think Jordan Peterson's being cavalier on some of the stuff. But the first postmodernist were, in the main, either existentialist Marxist hybrids who kind of start breaking away from Marxism, or flat out post-Marxists. So they started off as Marxists when they're in graduate school and break. Um, the examples for that are Foucault was never Marxist, but he was trained by a famous kind of dissident, weird Marxist, Althusser, um, dissident, weird Stalinist, if I'm completely honest. Um, then you also have Leotard, who starts off as a Marxist, but gives it up. Um, 
Well, and Leotard wrote the kind of famous book about um, postmodernism in uh, mm-hmm. that, that gets read in English grad programs, at least. So, right now, I have my own theories about this. I don't think postmodernism is a thing. Um, I think there's poststructuralism, and then what we could call like high modern or late modern art, and we might call it postmodern. But what postmodern refers to in art, and what postmodern refers to in and philosophy are not at all the same thing. So that's always that's always been a slippery wicket. You know, it, when I was in grad school and in college in the late 90s, early 2000s, it, that was the hip thing that was beginning to kind of fade out. And um, even then, nobody knew and would openly say they didn't really know how to define any of it because the, the various strands... Um, were so divergent and you know is Nietzsche a postmodernist? Well okay, uh maybe. Um but then Nietzsche Nietzsche's descendants are high modernists, so that doesn't entirely work. Um is uh, these late Marxist postmodernists, it's the Frankfurt School postmodernist. Well, the Frankfurt School definitely did not have a relativistic view on truth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because so they're that often doesn't work. They're very seen uh, th- today like very stodgy old, rather conservative uh, in, in many in many ways, right? So uh, the Frankfurt School is kind of out of fashion for a lot of uh, contemporary thinkers. That's because they're wrong. No, um, <laughs> contemporary thinkers not Frankfurt School. Um, so. So there is a kernel to this, but the, the the other thing is postmodernism, and I don't exactly know why, except that postmodernism became popular in the fields of um, history, sociology, to a lesser degree, anthropology, and um, was tied politically to decolonization. Um, it it became overlapping with quote critical theory unquote, which was sort of the Marxist study of culture so there was an overlap and conflation and like when it, when it got translated and the stuff got brought to english you had like the old stodgy german critical theorist and then the new hip french ones and then the newest hip french ones which were deconstructionist or new historicist who were our post-structuralist who were all somehow postmodern, quote unquote Mm-hmm. But that's kind of an accident of not just history, but the specific way in which these things were interpreted in the American Academy. Yeah. Okay. So there is a rational core here. The, the other thing is, though, outside from like Leotard and maybe Derrida and Deleuze and Guattari, nobody would have actually accepted that they were postmodernist and nobody would have thought they agreed with each other on hardly anything. <laughs> there was overlap between, between like, say, Baudrillard, Deleuze, and, um, and and to some degree Foucault, but even those guys were fighting constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that becomes hard to parse. All right. Secondly, neo-Marxism. So when Jordan Peterson got called out for using uh, cultural Marxism, he started uh, switching over to, quote, postmodern neo-Marxism. All right. Now, neo-Marxism 
like post-Marxism is kind of a thing. Neo-Marxism, but neo-Marxism refers to a wide variety of things that wouldn't even recognize each other. So analytical Marxism, it's Marxism that tries to justify it into analytic logic as opposed to Hegelian dialectical time logic because they find that as unrigorous or, or weirdly mystical or something. Okay. Um, Althusserian anti-dialectical structuralist Marxism would also be neo-Marxist. Uh Frankfurt School Marxism would be called neo-Marxist, although they would not have recognized that. Um, lots of uh, Keynesian monetary theory Marxist hybrids would be called neo-Marxist. Uh, dual systems theories, uh, economics out of Marxism, which is a, a kind of, I think, erroneous on on the part, but a kind of attempt to, to, to deal with um, neoclassical economics from a Marxist perspective, has been called neo-Marxist. These are just different Marxist theories that tweak one or two things um, to try to be in dialogue with things that have happened since Marx or since since the high water mark of the Soviet Union or since Soviet collapse. And again, there's not a consistent number. There's really not consistent traits other than we change one or two things to draw all these groups together. Okay. But they all might be called neo-Marxist. I've been called neo-Marxist, which is weird. I consider myself like like a first catechism Marxist, you know. <laughs> Vatican One. <laughs> no, no, Castle Trent Marxism. Okay. <laughs> Vatican One's revisionist. Um, <laughs> I gotcha. Um. <laughs> maybe not even Council of Trent Marxism. Maybe like. Constantinople and Nicene Marxism. <laughs> no wonder you're so stodgy. Uh, no, um, it's interesting uh, because when, when you're sending up, when you attach the word postmodern, and we have those terms you're throwing out, that's a lot of homework for the listener. Uh, do your Wikipedia searches about those things. There's a lots of, uh, if you listen to Derek talk before, there's so many uh, sectarian battles within Marx, uh, Marxist. Marxism as an umbrella that we could spend all day and never even scratch the surface of it. But, um, the, uh, but the idea of throwing the term postmodern for most people, that's a slur, um, that basically means when they use it, it means you just don't want to believe in any kind of higher authority or truth. Right. And so it's, yeah, it's the deconstructionist rejection of narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. So when people use postmodernism in a negative way, what they're talking about is people who don't want to accept um, in Jordan Peterson's case, for example, um, the kind of biological for him reality of two genders. Right. And so uh, for postmodernists or for people who just want to kind of deny the authority of some sort of um, of a grand narrative that binds all things together under an umbrella of um, truth that we can ascertain. And so uh, that bothers people and bothers some conservative thinkers. And so they throw the word postmodernism uh, on it to just sort of di- uh, sort of just sort of dismiss ideas that try to complicate um, these accepted truths. Right. And, and furthermore, I mean, from my perspective, if you were going to say which one of us, me or Jordan Peterson, was a postmodernist, I'm guessing Peterson. <laughs> because yeah, go ahead. Because uh, I don't mix and match narratives to fit whatever BS I want to believe. 
It's um, pastiche. That's in literary studies and postmodernism. One of the kind of aesthetics you get in mm. postmodern narratives is the idea of pastiche. It's grabbing a, something that's associated with one style or one grand narrative and smashing it together with something that is from a totally different ontology, a diff- totally different world. So, yeah. So like Jungian psychology plus evolutionary psychology plus Christianity. <laughs> That's exactly. That is totally postmodern pastiche, and you're right to call him out on it. Um, you know, and uh, I'm I'm not, you know, and there's a lot of other stuff going there, like that that attack on Marxists, which is a misreading Stephen Pinker did in his book The Brank Slate, where he was arguing against the tabula rasa view. So, you know, that is not even postmodern; it's high modern. That's actually John Locke, people. Um, I'll. <laughs> Uh, the tabula rasa view of human nature, uh, something that Marxists are erroneous. Well, Marx, ma- many Marxists actually believe it, sadly, but Marx is erroneously credited with believing, although he doesn't. He just says um, in a footnote a couple of places that uh, that species being for humanity is, you know, whatever human nature is, is both constant but always limited by its historical circumstances. So it's very hard to pin down. Mm-hmm what it is because it would change depending on the situation. So like Marx is one of those people who actually realizes in our modern pop psychology context that the separation between nature and nurture doesn't make any sense. Okay. Um, uh, the, it is not that he denies that there's any human nature at all, nor would he say that we would know whatever human nature was just from the way people behave now, because the way people behave now is situated in a context, which they can't necessarily control. But all that's aside, Okay, so so some of these figures that I mentioned, particularly the Frankfurt School, and the Frankfurt School is funny because the Frankfurt School gets used a lot. I suspect it's because of the three main figureheads in the Frankfurt School, one and a half of them were Jewish. Okay, now we're getting – so that's a good transition. Um, what you've talked about before was kind of a legitimate – um, idea of cultural Marxism. The, this it does come from a, a legitimate thing. Now you're getting into the kind of conspiratorial version of that term, right? The the, his, the historic, excuse me, the the conspiratorial history of that term. And like almost all conspiracy theories, ultimately it ends up blaming Jews for everything. <laughs> this is this is true of ninety percent of conspiracy theories. But uh, go right ahead. So the origins of cultural Marxism. Is cultural Bolshevismus. Cultural Bolshevism. Guess who coined those terms? Hitler? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. It wasn't Hitler per se, it was probably Strasser, but it was the most com- it was a commonly used piece of agiprop in Nazi writings in the thirties. Okay. Um, cultural Bolshevism. <laughs> Um, you would also hear this referred to as a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy, which would, you know, have fun things like blaming all modern banking on the Jews, but also communism on the Jews. <laughs> well, no one said conspiracy conspiracy theorists have to be internally consistent. So, because both were ways to destroy proud Germanic culture or Anglo-Saxon culture or whatever. Um, they would also like find and how they would do this is they would find uh, J- Jewish lineages to a lot of major figures. Marx was was uh, half Jewish. Um, LaSalle was half Jewish. 
um, Lenin had some Jewish ancestry, but all through their father, they would have, and, and in the case of Lenin, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have had any real exposure to Jewish culture at all. Trotsky was out and out Jewish. Um, but Stalin wasn't, um, which is also where some of these far rightists will have a softness for Stalin, mm. even though they hate Bolshevism, which is real weird. Yeah. Um, uh, but Karen didn't, uh, you know, actually the great majority of the Bolsheviks did not. Um, but, Anyway, but folks like um, Walter Walter Benjamin did right, and so a lot of yeah, but but Benjamin didn't even we don't even know that he died a Marxist. He flirted with it, but he also flirted with with messianic Kabbalah. Well, that's the facts of the case, but his percep- perception is also reality, right? And so um, mm-hmm. he's, he he gets lumped in with with Marxist thinkers, whether it was true or not, right? Just like Mark Fisher. So yeah. You know. <laughs> And and the fact that I'm half Jewish isn't going to help matters, is it? <laughs> um, but and, anyway, and, just, um. and, and there's a, a you know another allegory to this. The there's a very famous conspiracy text that was likely put out by czarist um, forces in Russia to incite violence pogroms against uh, Russian Jews. Um, the uh, the, uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion. Yeah, the protocols of the elder elders of Zion is a um, a very famous anti-Semitic text that attributes to Jews this intentional plot, uh, step by step plot to kind of take over the world and destroy all that is good, and it's been widely debunked for many many decades, um, and attributed to kind of czarist attempts to uh, to maintain Jewish marginality in, in the in the empire, and so um, but it still gets brought up, and this cultural Marxism has a bit of that to it um, because it's not a bit. Yeah. Like a lot. I mean, one of the things you got to remember is during the end of the Russian, uh, the Russian civil war in 1921, um, a lot of the white immigrants went directly and straight to Germany. Um, and they, they were in dialogue with a lot of the, uh, various reactionary groups in Germany. And, um, some of which actually fought Nazis, weirdly. I mean, but but regardless, they were they were in dialogue with that, and they started talking about the Jewish origins of Bolshevism almost immediately. And they also started talking about uh, the Jewish relationship of finance capital, mainly through the Rothschilds. Now, of Jewish conspiracies, okay, the the Hollywood one's the only one I've ever actually found the numbers to make it seem like oh, or there might be kind of something to that because most of the major Hollywood companies do happen to be owned by Jewish people. But banking has had major Jewish players and Jews have been allowed to bank because they weren't allowed to own land for forever. But banking has never actually been dominated by Jews. Mm. So um, that's a weird thing. And fascists have always had a particular uh, dislike for for bank for banking even when they weren't being anti-semites so mussolini i don't actually believe was was anything more than opportunistically anti-semitic he 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 actually had a integrationist policy towards jews until he made a pact with hitler but he always had a problem with finance capitalism i mean what he decided was that finance capitalism, rentier capitalism didn't produce anything and he got this from his marxist days because unfortunately mussolini did start out mm-hmm. as a marxist um, in fact, one of the most radical ones in the early um, Italian Communist Party. Hmm. 
when he switches sides, he decides that no, no, he, heroic and aggregarian capitalism is good, but corporate capitalism and finance capitalism is evil. And the Nazis had already been tying Jews to finance capitalism. Again, there had been a real historical core to why that was the case, but they were, of course, overstating it. And then they were also tying them to communism at the same time. So you have all these can things conflate, and you have the protocols come in too, which kind of has these elders of Zion running conspiracies to destroy Western culture from every end, including uh, including things that are seemingly oppose each other. So that's how you can hold these, you know, oppositional fraction factions as both being ran by Jews, kind of like the way people think that everything's run by the CIA now in conspiracy circles, right. um, and probably also Jews, but. Um, <laughs> you know, Zog occupied government or whatever. Um, and so this is the origins of this. This is literally the origins of this. It dies down for a long time. Although it was always a thing in the John Birch society. Uh, now a little, uh, plug in a couple of weeks, expect an episode on the John Birch society, um, specifically. So, um, the term cultural Marxism as a cult of cultural Bolshevism or Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy actually doesn't, like many things, I'm going to find something in the 70s or 80s written by a left-wing academic. Mm -hmm. God bless it. <laughs> um, Trent Stroyer wrote The Critique of Dominations, The Origins and Development of Critical Theory in 1973. It was kind of a Look at Gramsci and the Frankfurt School and the early post-structuralist and structuralist and see what they're trying to do about our culture. Okay. Now, there's another third thing that's legitimate in the background to this, and this gets tied up even more into the Cultural Revolution talks. So we have these different theories of culture coming out. At the same time, you have all these Marxists now talking about Cultural Revolution. Now, this doesn't come out of Marx. This doesn't really come out of Engels. It doesn't even really come out of Lenin entirely. Mm -hmm. Stalin, reading Lenin and Marx, comes up with this schema of how you have to go through social change revolutions. You first have to have a political revolution, then a cultural revolution, and then an economic one, which is kind of the opposite way you would think it would go given Marx's original concerns. But... <laughs> um, or at least you think that the, the economic and political would happen roughly at the same time in many stages and the cultural would just kind of happen after that. But Based on superstructure, um, right? Right. So um, the idea here in Stalin, though, is first you seize the government. You alter, you alter the legal structure. Then you through that legal structure, you encourage cultural change and a change in the cultural hegemony. hegemony, uh, hegemony although he doesn't use that word. That's used by Gramsci. And then you can finally completely alter the economic structure because you still laid down the groundwork completely to move across. From a Marxist standpoint, it's not completely insane. Mm -hmm. So Mao tries to literalize this theory in a way that the Bolsheviks never did. The Bolsheviks tried a little bit to have a cultural revolution in the early 1930s, but really they realized the populace, including a lot of the workers, and definitely the peasants got tired of them killing priests. And uh, maybe if you didn't kill so many priests which in retrospect was always stupid, um, uh, the, the people would fight harder with you to save communism, so they, they back down on the Cultural Revolution stuff and say, fine, we'll let you have your God, as long as the God is red. <laughs> All right. Um, 
and they start like re- you know revitalizing Tolstoy and stuff. Um, so this happens, and 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 this happens in the sixties as this other critical theory stuff is happening. So, and in France, people are picking up on German critical theory. They're picking up on this post this post existentialist new theory, and they're picking up on this stuff coming out of China. They think it's helping them fight the Stalinist in in their in France who are tied to Russia. And there's been the Sino-Soviet split at this point, even though effectively Maoism and and Stalinism aren't that different. And the Sino-Soviet split was was a little bit over Mao saying that that while there were problems with Stalin, really the Soviet Union wasn't Stalinist enough. Mm. Um, so. But but these these intellectuals and students get a hold of this in France, and this all comes together. And it's also tied into liberals who do the same thing. And you see this also in the United States in the SDS, which is like got libertarian elements in it, but also normal liberal elements in it, and then like all kinds of Marxists who are using the organization to fight each other while they're fighting for free speech, and then against the uh, war in Vietnam. That's the Students so, for Democratic Society, right? Yeah. The Students for Democratic Society, which ended up – it did end up getting taken over by Maoist. It was not founded by them. It was founded by – I think by kind of a libertarian dude actually, uh, kind of a libertarian hippie um, and and some vaguely social democratic people. But, but anyway, this all happens. The other thing that starts happening is all kinds of Marxists start getting interested in talking about race, gender, sexuality and stuff in there. First, they want to eradicate – sexuality because they consider it a bourgeois deviance um but they don't want to do it by killing everybody because they're getting a little tired of killing everybody at this point <laughs> and uh, you, you're like you know this um the young socialists really need to study history right the, this new socialist re- revival who have no memory of the soviet union and all that they really do need to step back um and and study some really troubling aspects of the, of the past to make sure we don't repeat them right so yeah um I say this flippantly. The, I mean, like the funny thing is, if you ask me about certain questions, I'll actually defend the Soviet Union because a lot of the critiques of them are just kind of wrong. But truth is truth, and on the sexuality stuff, they were not good. The Maoists were were worse, and when you get to Latin America, yeah, it gets pretty bad. Yeah. Um, which is funny because now a lot of the most a lot of people who are most interested in these identity issues in conjunction with with Marxism are the people from the groups that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but part of that has to do with the fact that all those groups developed with a completely separate history outside of their political context, because they were cut. They didn't really know what was going on when they like, they read the little red book, right? Mm-hmm. They knew about the black Panthers and the black Panthers had divisions amongst themselves on all this. Right. So, what happens is this stuff kind of develops in America kind of separately from its original grounds and all these cases, and they get clustered together. And liberals in the 60s start using Marxist, post-structuralist, all kinds of different language. Um, I sometimes joke that if, like, liberals didn't, you know, aside from liberals' fear of, of Marxists, which is always there, they probably would, like, have a stultifying vocabulary and and a framework that hadn't left the 17th century if they hadn't been pulling from all these other groups. Um, so they come out of this. Um, 
but the interesting thing about this is in Peterson's mind and a lot of the right wingers mind, those were all like ways to undermine Western society from Marxism. Yeah. But anyone who studies this knows that Marxism actually just had to accommodate those things. They came out of Chicago school sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like the way that most of those those uh, things were, were studied and the way we talk about them. They came out of Chicago school sociology and Marxist kind of acquiesced to dealing with them. Um and then, and then, you know, we, we could go into the other keywords where you heard me talk about some of these other things that came out of legal theory, law, anthropology, and all that. So they all get thrown together. But you do have them referred to as kind of cultural Marxism and the overlap between the left wing of liberalism and kind of this new all-inclusive, we're not just, you know, going to build the factories and – stuff anymore marxism from the from the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. okay well pat buchanan started using this term again in the late 1990s don't know where he picked it up i don't know that it had any fascist ties i mean when I was when, <laughs> this is a little bit embarrassing, but when I was in the '90s, I read some Pat Buchanan books. And I didn't even think they were totally stupid. Yeah. Um. So like, I don't want to. I don't want to actually disparage the man and say he's a crypto Nazi, but it is weird that a guy who wrote a book saying we should have never gone to war with Nazi Germany did start picking up these terms. Now, he might have picked them up from '70s left culture. I mean, he was in that milieu, opposing it vociferously in the Nixon administration. Sure. Um, but who knows? All right. Now they started attributing cultural Marxism to multiculturalism and political correctness. All right. And what they meant by that, it was kind of a metaphor for having, you know, speech codes and you speak and all that. Um, and it was kind of a new way to talk about it. But really, it's just like a few paleoconservatives using this term, um, and they don't use it that often. Uh, Paul Godfrey uses it to talk about this weird murder. Wait, wait, uh, Paul Godfrey, who is a, a student, uh, an associate of Pat Buchanan, and a student, actually, interestingly, of Herbert Marcuse. Mm. Who is and, a, a fair, uh, he was one of the big uh, Frankfurt School guys who kind of is credited for with uh, in almost uh, being spearheading the new left um, in, right. uh, in the 60s. Yeah. And Paul Gottfried's also a men- was a mentor, although he's broken with them, of Richard Spencer. Mm-hmm. All right, so you got a direct line there. Now, I actually think Gottfried, if you're gonna read a far rightist in America, um, I would tell everybody to read his book. He's not dumb, and he actually does have a lot of legit facts in what he does. There is also this fringy libertarian side um, around Hans Hermann Hoppe of the most extreme end of Austrian libertarianism. And he was also considered himself a libertarian Frankfurt schooler. Mm -hmm. And he too talked about cultural Marxism and wanted to invert its tropes. All right. But he saw himself, he was also a student of one of the Frankfurt schoolers. I'm not actually sure which one Mm -hmm. Um, he was, he was trained in Germany, but he, he's the person who wrote a book called democracy, the God It failed and basically made an argument that like really capitalism is feudalism. So why don't we just have a king? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, which is an unfair 
summary of his position, but that is the position he ultimately comes down on. <laughs> you know, we shouldn't have any government at all, but if we're going to have a government, it might as well be a king because he's a property owner. <laughs> um, And has good time preference. All right. Now, William Lind of the Free, Cong- of the Free Congress Foundation picked up on the term uh, from Pat Buchanan and from in 1998 all right and instead of it just meaning like political correctness with some critical theory thrown in he 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 said it was a way of totalitarian ideologies to turn you know american campuses into smart ivy covered north koreas okay all right where the student and I'll, i'll read the quote where the students are faculty member who dares to cross any line set up by the gender feminist or the homosexual rights activist or the local black or Hispanic group or any other saint of victim groups that resolves around quickly find themselves in judicial trouble. Uh, Lind gave this speech many times and in 2000 he said it again. Um, political correctness is cultural Marxism. It is the Marxism translated from economic into cultural terms. It, it's an effort that goes back not to the 1960s and hippies and the peace movement but to World War One. If we compare the basic t- uh, basic tenets of political correctness with classical Marxism, the parallels are obvious. Hmm. Um, how does all this stuff flood in here? How does it flood into our universities and indeed our lives today? The members of the Frankfurt School are Marxists, and they also and they are also to a man Jewish. Even though Adorno had a Christian mother, and I don't think Horkheimer was actually Jewish, and whatever. So he just outright says it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And this is in the 2000s. This is 1998, 2000. So it comes back. I mean, like Pat Buchanan have been using it in this way, sort of, but not with the direct um, line and not with the implication that it was an active conspiracy. Yeah. So going back to World War One and also Buchanan would trace it back to the 60s. Lynn's saying, no, it's it's it goes back all the way to 1917. This has always been the ideal. Um, and uh, while a lot of liberals and left-wing friends of mine love the American conservative, and I sometimes think American conservative is a war, this was published in the American conservative magazine. So, oh, you know, that's there you go. So it becomes, I mean, it transforms from a dog whistle to like a megaphone, essentially, in that moment. Like it's, it's no longer coded language. Um, what I mean is it becomes explicit in this moment. Mm-hmm. Pat Buchanan, after that, in 2002, in his second uh, campaign, when he was working with the Reform Party, which split the Reform Party at the time, which is, uh, people forget, was Nader's party before that, hmm. uh, accused Native Americans of attempting to block a Columbus Day parade of cultural Marxism. <laughs> hmm. And he uses it again in his book, The Death of the West. Now, you, does anyone else talk about this stuff? Oh, yeah, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Um. So... What's interesting to me about this is, one, not only does it conflate postmodernism and Marxism, two, it conflates all this liberal sociology in with Marxism, and three, the, a lot of the things it describes are actually, if you really study it, kind of results of capitalist development, like yeah. alienation from the family, um, the inability of families to spend a lot of quality time together, decline, uh, secularization, the decline of, of church, because look – you know, if I was out to destroy the family and religion, 
I could try to suppress it like the Soviet Union did and somehow make one of the most religious countries on the planet by accident. <laughs> or I can pull the like happy Western Europe model and just like make you all work too much and invest too much in education to to care about that kind of stuff anymore and also penalize it through tax policy and stuff. I don't know. Using the Protestant work ethic against it, um, in, in a sense. Um, the idea that, the, yeah. yeah, the idea that, yeah, and I, I totally have always kind of felt that there was something hollow about conservative critiques of what's wrong with society today because they want to blame everything except the one thing that they hold as sacrosanct is capitalism. And I think you're right. I think most of the problems that folks the culture warriors identify are not um, the result of anything other than market forces at work. <laughs> so neo-Nazis picked this up after the Anders Breivik manifesto. I remember when this happened and I, this is when I started seeing this up again. And what was weird about this is I also started seeing not just paleo conservatives using this language because there'd always been a, you know, and look, I know this intimately. For people who don't know my history, I come out of a paleoconservative background. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't start off as a rabid redder. <laughs> All right. Um, but uh, it was this kind of stuff in the background of paleoconservatism caused me to break with it. Okay. Um, I mean, it wasn't the only stuff. Also, they were wrong about economics. But, I mean, like... But it was this stuff that I was like, you know, at first, you know, you, you, you get into anti-war stuff and the people who speak more consistently about it than liberals who are really mishy-mashed, depending on the time period, and don't have coherent strata to deal with it, are like Marxists who also believe in violent revolution, though, and then like paleoconservatives. Mm -hmm. um, but I started seeing these kind of these things turn from dog whistles to out white statements. Yeah. And and the, the the person Anders that was the guy who shot the shot up that school right um, in uh, right some Scandinavian country I can't remember where it was um, and so, so Anders um, Anders's manifesto he picks up cultural Marxism and even references William Lynn's speech over and over again in it from the American conservative let's, let's repeat yeah. Um, well, I mean, he didn't give the speech. I mean, the speech was just reprinted in the American Conservative. And I don't know that the line about Jews uh, is in the American Conservative one, nor do I know that the American Conservative still prints it because its editorial ship has, has changed and moderated significantly Yeah, from Pat Buchanan and Taki, whatever the Papalopoulos, the guy who runs Taki Mag, which is even to the right of anything Pat Buchanan ever said. To uh, you know, like Rod Dreyer, who I consider the Mister Rogers of conservative of conservative Christianity, <laughs> okay. other than Mister Rogers himself. But um, <laughs> uh, so you know, there's been a move away from that, and um, and even that started even in the in the Bush years. But so Breckovit picks it up, and then the Daily Stormer picks this up like wildfire. Mm -hmm. All shows back up. That's part of the history of the word. Now, Paul Godfrey, as I said, is a, is a far rightist, uh, a mentor to Richard Spencer, although he broke with them, um, a a uh, a student of Herbert Marcuse, um, a friend to people in the European New Right. And if you don't know who they are, and you're interested in like the alt right, 
the alt-right have serious intellectual forebearers that had real weight in Russia and in France and in Italy. Okay. All right. They're called the European New Right. Um, but uh, Andrew Brevnik, uh, Baring Brevnik does in this rampage. Um, and Paul Gottfried writes his thing, um, shows up on Uns Review, um, you know, in the alternative media selection, if you want to find it now. It came out in 2011, where he uh, chastises Breivik for going way too far, um, you know, for being a murderous loon, basically. But also says... Um, you know that uh, um, that there is a, a a rational kernel of truth to cultural Marxism that paleoconservatives and and rightists should maintain. Now, the thin thing about Gottfried, Gottfried's a Jew. Hmm. All right, like some other people you happen to be talking to right now, or at least halfway like me, he's he's a hundred percent Jewish. So. When I say that, he doesn't have the anti-Semitism in cultural Marxism. He can't. He's not a fool mm-hmm. or self-hating, you know. Um, and he's also not an idiot. And he he was a student of Herbert Marcuse. He did have um, exposure to Adorno and Horkheimer through a direct source. Mm-hmm. And um, he does think there is some truth to this kind of cultural Marxist uh, – thing of liberalism where the Marxists gave up on the working class as the, uh, in his theory, the Marxists gave up on the working class as, uh, a means of changing the world. Um, they start looking for a new revolutionary subject and can't find it. And so they start focusing on culture, pulling from Antonio Gramsci on one end and then the Frankfurt school on the other. And look, I think that's an oversimplification, I don't think it's entirely true. For example, I don't think the Frankfurt School in the era of Adorno and Marcuse gave up on economics. Like their critique of the cultural industry actually is mostly an economic critique ultimately. Right. Um, even though they're sociologists. Uh, later when you get the ha- Habermas, yeah, they pretty much have given up on economics. Um, but... Um, He says basically, yeah, there's some truth to this. And um, basically, according to Gottfried, the Marxists tried to control the liberals but ended up being being controlled by the liberals through this cultural Marxism stuff. And um, he, he actually goes and spells out the various theories. Um, and this in another essay, uh, he mentions the dialectic, um, the negative dialectic and minimum moralia. He talks about um, Louis Strauss. He talks about how Marxism died effectively in Western Europe, and this cultural Marxism was his only way to live on, even before the Soviet Union fell. Um, and he then says, "Look, there are there are theories about cultural Marxism um, from Southern Poverty Law Center to Vider, who you know who he disagrees with." And he talks about William Lind, who he disagrees with. Um, he says William Lind doesn't give uh, managerial liberalism enough credit for the development. 
he he talks about Kevin McDonald, who does really Kevin McDonald is a theorist of like genetics theory, but like that the Jews are really <laughs> um, messing with genetics through cultural manipulation. Okay. Um, and he says he doesn't think that's true either. There's not enough consistency there, um, et cetera, and so forth. Um, he says that's in a couple a couple essays, and most recently I saw him writing a letter. Uh, well, a letter um, on LouRockwell.com, which is you know the paleo libertarian, so it's a paleo conservative libertarian thing, mm-hmm. um, where uh, he talks about um, Jordan Peterson just conflating all these things together and it's, ir- and it's irresponsible and you should quote, get the culprits right. Unquote. Okay. Um, don't blame Marxists for stuff they're not doing. Don't blame cultural Marxists for stuff they're not doing and get that. They don't all agree. Um, you know, and he, he, he talks about, uh, entryism in the CPUSA, which is real, um, you know, and stuff like that. But he says, you know, the postmodernists are not Marxist. They're not cultural Marxist either. This neo-Marxist is too variant. Um, cultural Marxists aren't really Marxists anymore. They're all now liberals anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I, I, I bring him up because I still disagree with him. And I still think there's this weird, vaguely, you know, Nazi-esque conspiracy theory in the background here. But what he says has enough rational kernel to it that you could see that if you were to encounter him, this wouldn't seem crazy, nor would it necessarily seem anti-Semitic. Okay. But when you look at William Lind or Kevin McDonald or its historical uses in Germany, um, you would immediately see that this is kind of nuts. Now, the other funny and interesting thing about this is that not just have leftists pointed out that this doesn't make that much sense. There are not just rightists, but far rightists who have pointed out that this doesn't make a lot of sense. My favorite is Gary North. You may know of Gary North. Do you know of Gary North? Um, I've heard the name. Yeah. Yeah, he's a dominionist. He's a he's a he's well, like the I, godson of Russ Dooney. That's but how he I've write, heard. That's how I've heard the name. But he writes for libertarians. Okay. So he's like he hangs out with like Lou Rockwell and these like you know ultra Austrian libertarian types, right? Okay. Um, and, and now I'm really confusing your listeners because we're moving from me dropping academic jargon to left jargon to like right wing <laughs> jargon. Um, so they're they're kind of like Anne Randoids, but like more so. They're the disciples of Roy Rothbart who disagree with reason, and the other disciples of Roy Rothbart for being a too statist and b too liberal. Okay. Um, like, you know, and they're how like Ron Paul and Ram Paul have both been linked to like racialists because occasionally Rockwell will work with them or publish stuff by them. Okay. And Rockwell's also wrote for Ron Paul's newsletter and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but Rockwell, Rockwell publishes this, uh, this critique by, by Paul Gottfried saying, look, Jordan Peterson, you're throwing way too much stuff together. Um, it makes you very easy to debunk. Neo-Marxism may be a problem. Political correctness may be a problem. Postmodernism may be a problem. But they aren't the same problem and aren't the same thing. And then Gary North, this dominionist ultra-libertarian who also is associated with the same magazine, but he said this years ago, would say stuff like, cultural Marxism doesn't even make sense as a term. It's an oxymoron. 
there is no such thing as a cultural Marxist. Right. Um, and this is, you know, this is not just a, to, to put it, put it, it, you know, Gary North is not just like a libertarian. I mean, he's a libertarian who openly thinks that part of the reason why we should be libertarians is so we could have civil societies that enacted mosaic law so we could stone people to death. Mm-hmm. Um, so, meh. Um, there is some reality to it. And in the sense that there was this Frankfurt School thing, and there was this cultural hegemony argument, that it, it, that actually has become weirdly, um, fl- uh, weirdly popular in academia. The way that 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 critical theory and postmodern and post-existential critical theory have mixed together makes it that they all use a similar vocabulary and associate with each other, particularly in America. Yeah, because um, and that like. Very radical left liberals also pull from Marxist ideas, but without realizing it and throw it all together, as I mentioned, like the weird, the weird history of standpoint epistemology is another history of this. But really, when they say cultural Marxism, most people really mean evil Jews. <laughs> well, and if they don't mean it, that's kind of what they are saying, right? And, right. And, and so it sounds to me like at some point, because of post-Marxist academics basically having to grapple with like advances in liberalism um, essentially mm-hmm. and trying to incorporate that into the Marxist project. Um, they, there's this then conflation in the minds of those and en- their enemies um, uh, that this is, was the project all along. Right. And so, mm-hmm. but there's also an element that it seems to me that there's just using Marxist as a slur. Right, as a handy, like negative, a devil term, if you will. Yeah, we're we're all scary and stuff, us Marxists. Yeah, <laughs> well, but yeah, but and so I'm looking through some of the iconography that comes along when you just Google search cultural Marxism, and I guess I'll probably use one for the uh, for the show note uh, liner notes for this uh, episode. Um, and it's it's very it's very Marxian, it's very kind of uh, Soviet, excuse me, um, in style. A lot of the iconography for, uh, about mar- cultural Marxism. It's called, you see the word smash cultural, cultural Marxism quite a lot. Um, and, and it's interesting to me that it has this kind of um, clearly kind of fascist uh, uh, critique built into the aesthetics of it. Right. And so um, that's where the Jews, the, you know, the anti-Semitism does kind of rear itself back. There does seem to be underneath all of this, this inha- inherent conspiratorial mm-hmm. distrust and uh, and anger at Jews. Yeah, and so here's here's what I'm saying in defense of Jordan Peterson. I don't think he knew that when he first started using the term, and that's why he switched the terms. Okay, what, I think he got it because the, where this cultural Marxist talk came about, he started writing about Marxism, you know, and Maoism, quote, ruining the academy as is in 1998. It even shows up in his book Massive Meaning. Um, so this is way before this current debacle. And back when a lot of liberals thought he was cool, mm-hmm. but also no one cared about him, like at all. Um, but I suspect what happened with him is cultural Marxism not just got through Pat Buchanan. The, the elephant in the room that I haven't mentioned is Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, not just the magazine, started talking about this conspiracy on like Fox News, unquestioned, and the and like. 
shortly before his death, I think around 2010-2011, during the Obama years. And I'm thinking that is probably where Peterson picked it up, mm-hmm. as it would have, because it would have been around Canadian conservative conservative circles too. Um, and he just didn't know about this other history mm-hmm. to it. So he he changes the term to postmodern neo Marxism, but in doing so, actually conflates more stuff in it. Right. Um, <laughs> Makes it make even and, less sense. Yeah. You know, and I I just point that out because. There is a sense that uh, that this trend is kind of a uh, there's this kind of paleo conservative and soft fashy mm-hmm. um, influence on the peripheral of the right that has been kind of getting more and more mainstream for a long time, and, and I don't want to say fascists and paleo conservatives are the same people. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, there are paleo conservatives I respect, but. And there have been people in paleoconservatism who've been trying to redeem this theory too and kind of remove it from its uh, purely, you know, Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy kind of origins. Um, But it's really hard to say um, that there's that many people who use that term who, if they knew what it meant, would either a still use it or b um, I, it, it, it would be hard for me to imagine them doing it in good faith if mm-hmm. they're not also dog whistling or they're trying to use Marxism as a kind of of uh, discrediting category. So they're, they're trying to fight liberals and just by calling them Marxist. And authoritarians, because they also call these people like stormtroopers and Nazis. Right. So, you know. Well, it's one of the reasons we're doing this episode, these episodes is that words don't mean anything anymore. And uh, and we want to kind of uh, do our small part in recovering some of the actual meaning of the words. Um, yeah, because, yeah, we just any kind of anything that we can determine as a slur, we just use it on the basis that it is a slur, whether it makes any sense or not. And so that that is a problem. It is while we're talking, though, it's interesting. And I guess we could sort of start wrapping this up um, um, way before five hours in. Uh, so but it. It seems to me that conspiracies work better for the right than they do for the left. Like, I, I, I it's hard to think of left wing conspiracies beyond something like the CIA or something like that, right? Um, nine tr- eleven, uh, truthers were predominantly left wing for a while. Is that right? Okay, that's interesting. Um, well, and I, I mean, I honestly, that, that led to stuff like uh, back in the day, um, and Doug Lane had um, Doug Lane and Michael Brooks talked about this on Doug Lane's podcast recently. When like, um, uh, like Linklater would include um, a much younger Alex Jones in Waking Life because there seemed to be some kind of overlap between like nine eleven troopers on the left. And uh, 9-11 troopers on the right in the early aughts, which now, you know, given the current political circumstances, seems absolutely nutty. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, my, I, I do think that for, for the most part, there's a <sighs> Douglas Lane and I used to say um, – I back down from this a little bit, but that 
conspiracy theory thought is not paranoid enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. It still believes there's someone in control. They're just bad. Okay. I see what you're saying. That there are individual forces, and if you had the right people in power, yeah, to fight those evil, evil forces, you could change everything. Yeah, and that's the basis of QAnon, right? QAnon is the belief that there are these white hats uh, in the deep state that is trying to to fix the problem by getting uh, by draining the swamp uh, via Trump of the uh, of the the bad actors. And so, yeah, right. I, yeah, I can see that in that conspiracy theory. Yeah. And I think just by its nature, you know, leftists see things as structural and not at the mercy or whims of individual actors. Right. And so um, people act based on their position in the system. That's why they focus on the system so much. Uh, and so things that would if the system is set up. So that it would appear to be conspiratorial, uh, even though it, it depends not on any individual um, orchestration. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I know. think that's true for left liberalism too. Although they are more likely to think that individual agency matters than most Marxists are. Like Putin, you know, I actually do think that individual agency matters some. I mean, I don't think humans are automatons, but I, I, I think I, I, uh, I was on Thaddeus Russell, who you know I think is kind of a libertarian podcast and i told him you know in history an individual can act against his personal interest against his class interest against all kinds of things but in aggregate it's not gonna it's gonna work out very clearly Mm -hmm. so like me as a person i can't buck the system i can do it i really could but i'm not gonna change anything about the system the only thing that's gonna change is me so in aggregate every my rebellion doesn't matter all right, unless it's system, unless it's systemic. Okay. So yeah, of course, conspiracy theories are going to have a little pull for me. But I mean, there are true conspiracies. COINTELPRO. Yeah. Um. Uh. And COINTELPRO. Uh, some people focus on the left. COINTELPRO messed with everybody. If you read the, you read the biography of John Lincoln Walkwell, the leader of the American Nazi Party, it weirds weirdly like the same thing that happens to Black Panther Party. Like, like COINTELPRO was all up in that, you know. The the American Nazi Party and the American Communist Party, what was that joke that there are 4,000 of them and 3,000 of them are CIA agents? So, you know. um, Well, we'll come back to the CIA, though, right? That seems to be the only kind of arena where leftists kind of dive into, like, we're, you know, actual leftists, not left liberals, but leftists kind of accept uh you know conspiratorial thinking as a possibility that seems to be one of the few at least um, yeah and i i tend to i i i actually think that's a cop-out on our part that that we somehow attribute this agency of the of a competency that we can't attribute to any like we don't even attribute that kind of competency to capitalism. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that, and you know, capitalism for us is like the great Satan. Yeah. So like, um, giving, giving, um, the CIA that much leverage, uh, amuses me. I mean, maybe it's because I know a little bit more about it. Maybe it's because I have friends who can't talk to me, but <laughs> about this kind of stuff. But who I know were in the CIA and what they could talk to me about did not give me a veneer of feeling like it was particularly competent. <laughs> um, not particularly incompetent either, but it was still a government bureaucratic organization. Um, so I, I do find that its hands are kind of in every honeypot, but 
as a strategy, if you, you know, it's kind of a, a risk investment strategy. That is like the safest investment strategy ever is like give a little bit to all sides in case one of them wins. And then we, you know, we'll have it in like that's, that's kind of what the CIA does. Um, if you actually study with like, even if you look at say like the Vietnam, like the Cuban revolution, we kind of helped Castro and then kind of helped Batista and then, you know, kind of didn't do either. Uh, we definitely kind of helped the Vietnamese and then kind of didn't when we changed sides Yeah, to help the French. Yeah. Um, you know, so like we have a long history of doing that, but the other thing that it tells me is we're not competent. Well, a lot of my my left wing, we're being the say in the U.S. government, not so much me. Um, <laughs> um, a lot of my my uh, right wing friends they see that incompetence is actually a metaparted conspiracy to throw us off the tail of what they're actually really doing. Okay, yeah, that's exactly yeah the uh, the sort of um, false flag thing, and, and there is some degree to which I can see particularly with, oh, like false the, flags happen. I mean, yeah, but. Well, and, and I could see with like the UFO stuff when people, I mean, I think that there are clearly are, there's a, a documentary that you should watch at some point if you haven't called Mirage Men. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and the argument is basically that, yeah, the when the UFO story started going around, the government actually kind of encouraged them to keep people from asking questions about projects in development, like military technologies that are in, de- in development. So they sort of latch on to people who are prone to believing in these conspiracy theories and encourage them, feed them false information mixed in with a little true information to uh, just kind of muddy the waters enough. That seems a reasonable thing for a government to do. Right. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, I guess it's a conspiracy though, when you think about it. Well, I mean, but here's the thing. I think a lot of that, I think a lot of those mild conspiracies are true and they're usually actually hide incompetence. I mean, like, um, when you actually get a lot of these redacted papers and you look at what they're hiding, it's usually somebody messed up and they wanted to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> um, very few with, with, with the exception of some of the stuff in the church in the church papers released. And I'll give it that, but very few of the conspiracies that have ever been outed are not things we kind of didn't already figure out, even in the mainstream press before it happened, mm-hmm. before it got outed. Like, we kind of knew the NSA was spying on everybody when that was a conspiracy theory. We kind of knew that the that people in the Bush administration were deliberately conflating things and using bad intelligence and ignoring other intelligence. Like, that had been reported on in mainstream press way before I got blown out and proven. Yeah. Um, it was part of the debate. I mean, and, and yeah, it was just kind of squashed in the in the patriotic fervor, so... Right. And so when conspiracy theories, sure they help the right because I think they help this notion that there is a competent authority out there that could win everything and just direct the ship based off the goodness of their moral convictions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think some liberals go that way too. A lot of hippie liberals can get there. I mean, um, well, the James Comey thing is a perfect example. That's basically his theory of life, isn't it? Um, is that we just need to have men of integrity or probably men of integrity uh, running our institutions as they currently exist. And that's what the problem is. We don't have people of integrity. But I don't want to say – and here's where I'm, I'm going to be a little bit cautious, Danny. I don't want to say that, um, that it always helps to write in every climate because I'm thinking about Stalin. Stalin was a conspiracy nut. Interesting. Not about big conspiracies. It was all little conspiracies. But 
everything I've read from his journals, and I'm one of the few Marxists who who doesn't like Stalin and is not like a you know, um, you know, bowing down to the poster of of uh, Uncle Joe. Um, and those guys are weirdly making a comeback, yeah. which confuses me. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just like the same way right wingers edge lured themselves into being Nazis by trolling themselves so hard. They eventually believe it. <laughs> I sometimes think that happens on the left too. Uh, well, I don't think I'm pretty much know it does, but, um, one of the weird things about Stalin is Stalin what believed in those conspiracies and he had reason to believe in those conspiracies, even though most of them, from what I can tell, were completely false. Mm. I'm not one of those people who thinks Stalin like had Kirov killed just to take power and didn't believe anything he said, because I see no evidence of it in anything he wrote or any of the private letters that we have or anything that's been released from the archives. The reason why he believed in conspiracies is one, it was in power, and two, they had to use conspiracies to take out the czar, so he knew that people could do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, he had living history to, uh, to draw that, on. Like, didn't believe in was big international conspiracies that were secretly running the world right um and but i i think conspiracy theories helped power because because conspiracists still ultimately believe in the legitimacy of power most mm-hmm. of the time they just believe it's run by bad people or aliens or jews or somehow alien bad people jews <laughs> who are reptilian yes but also jews <laughs> But also reptiles <laughs> who are aliens yes. and the Earth's flat. Yes. And Australia is not real. That's the new one. Have you heard this? The moon may or may not be real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we do love a, conspir- a good conspiracy theory on this show. And we are going to, I mean, guys, this is a good preview episode in a couple of weeks. I'm scheduled to record a show about the John Birch Society, which is interesting because, uh, you know, folks like who we, I don't know if you would call William F. Buckley a paleoconservative. I mean, that's how I think of paleoconservatism is Buckley. Oh, that's not how I think of paleoconservatism. Okay. But, but he did, I mean, he sort of kicked the Birch Society out, right? So at some point yeah. there was a, uh, a division among conservatives where, you know, there were people who knew where to draw lines. for. Yeah, my other hobby, I have many hobbies. Um, many weird historical hobbies. You know, a lot of it's like studying religion, but my other hobby is actually studying the history of the weirdo dissident right in America. Yeah. Um, mainly because I don't believe in horseshoe theory and ideology, but I do believe in horseshoe theory and personality types. And a lot of these dysfunctional personality types I see in the left, I also clearly see analogs in it on the right. Sure. Um, and, uh, you should. I, I would suggest people read this book because it overlaps with what we're talking about today, actually, and that is uh, right wing critics of American conservatism, and it talks about like neo reactionaryism, the European new new left, the paleo conservatives, the Austrian libertarians, the Birch Society, and what Buckley is a paleo conservative now, but Buckley was also in many ways trying to set the tone of what was acceptable. Um, and he was, he, he, he decided that many wings of the old guard conservative conservatism going back into the thirties, um, was not acceptable. And, and many neoconservative groups who he didn't agree with actually, and thought maybe they were weird Straussians or maybe even secret Trotskyists somewhere, um, were more acceptable. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, when frustrated, a lot of the paleo conservatives would turn into 
usually anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Sure, yeah. Um, not always anti-Semitic, but it, it was common. Um, now, I don't want to give Buckley too much credit. Um, there's been this te- tendency, like the tendency with John McCain to now eulogize him because everybody seems so much scarier that we forget <laughs> the awful stuff that they did. Sure. But um, not to piss on the freshly dead. Right. But, um, but Buckley did try to mediate this. And unfortunately, and I will mention this little fact that that is a fact <laughs> that doesn't help that, you know, doesn't help us when we're arguing with conspiracy theorists. You know, how I told you the CIA kind of put their money in every corner. I mean, like literally they were sponsoring arts programs to get artists out of, you know, communist collectives and in the universities. Yeah. Right. That's a true fact. This, uh, yeah. They, yeah. Boots Riley has been talking about this with it uh, in the promotional material for his new movie. Yeah. Yeah. I rolled my eyes at it. <laughs> uh, I have on zero books. I have a long uh, audio reflection on what Boots Riley is right about and what Boots Riley is kind of missing. Okay. Um, uh, but I really like Boots Riley. He had an interest, uh, unrelated to anything we're talking about. He had a very interesting and I think accurate take on Spike Lee's trajectory lately that i think people should read but that plug aside um i think your audience would be interested in it um is that on the, is that behind the paywall no i don't think so okay i think it may be just a, a post somewhere oh, oh you mean um zero books no this is just boots riley just po- i think he just posted this he was talking about the change in the way um uh spike lee has presented po- police and ways he changed the history of the black Klansman story Oh, to make the police look better. Okay, I see. I see. Um, which I do think is fascinating. Um, but no, my point about the CIA is, so when a couple of people got, you know, a couple of major cultural figures were sponsored by the CIA through, either through being married to diplomats, which are often sponsored by the CIA, mm-hmm. or um, were just outright members. Gloria Steinem, Buckley. Hmm. Uh, William F. Buckley. So, like, the paleo conservatives will bring this up. Um, even like Julia Childs. Um, They're covering all their bases. What are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, another thing they did, um, and I mentioned this in my thing about Boots Riley, is during this time period, both the precursor to the CIA, which is exact uh, acronym I've forgotten. And the CIA, they would do stuff like they would bring in like the they would do stuff like give money to like the MFA programs and these high modernist arts programs, and then also give money to these far right groups to denounce them as communist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they were trying to get them to do that. It was just like, well, we we'll give everybody money. We got a little bit of influence everywhere, and I don't care if they fight. Um, and they they also did this with the Frankfurt School, which is another thing. Because this jail Bolshevik conspiracy, according to some of the more conspiratorial minded, goes all the way up to the CIA being secretly run by Zog, mm. and um, and therefore like the Frankfurt School was funded by the CIA, which was somehow funded by proto Israel, um, to bring them here. And the the mm. again the the kernel of truth to a lot of this is that the Frankfurt School was brought to America by the precursor to the CIA to help it fight both fascist and Stalinist. Mm-hmm. There's truth to that. Sure. The, the, like the, the authoritarian personality study was partially funded by the, 
by uh, U.S. intelligence agencies. Sure. As were and a lot that's of, true. Yeah, a lot of your sort of radical little magazines were as well, right? And so yeah, dissident got money from them. Um, uh, a couple of conservatives. I don't think. Weirdly, I don't think the Birch Society did. I think the Birch Society just got COINTELPRO problems. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I'm still trying to trace that down myself. A lot of times, I end up tracing footnotes and archives and like very obscure books to find where we would possibly find some of this information, even though it's all been disclosed now. Yeah. Um, so since I don't want to spend half my day go- doing FOIA release, since I have a day job and I write poetry and other books, um, <laughs> this is what you end up doing. This is not but, a man who watches Netflix all evening. I, I will say that, right? So, um, yeah, and, and you know, just one final note though, despite. You know, uh, Buckley's initial, like, he keeps the Birch Society out, but ultimately the American conservative, um, begun, be, helps promote this cultural Marxism theory. So you were talking about the way in which this kind of fringe thing worms its way into the rather mainstream. Well, yeah, but the American conservative is, let's be careful about that. The American conservative has always been the dissident paleocon mainstream right magazine though okay like it, it set itself up against um national review yeah um its relationship to buckley i imagine is quite complicated even now even like uh rod dreyer right i don't think rod dreyer is still the editor but rod dreyer writing for it and some other people um conversely uh you know a, a lot of this a lot of this uh, russian stuff that's come up lately it kind of reminds me of this. Like hmm. uh, sometimes I think the, the left wing conspiracy mindset, you can replace Jews with Russia right now. <laughs> um, yes. and, and, and here's the thing. I, I actually think a lot of the Russian stuff is legitimate because one, I was calling out that RT was a intelligence operation in like 2010. Sure. And, and two, um, what, what I think is the, the, the modern Russians, the post Soviet Russians. So, the KGB and the NKBD never would play both sides except in their own country. So in their own country, they would like open false right groups to find out who the rightists are and go imprison them. But they never did that internationally. They weren't like giving money to fascist groups to have them fight liberal groups so that the communists could go in and take over. They did not do that. They did all kinds of other heinous stuff like kill other communists and, you know, make detente with fascists and do all kinds of crazy stuff, but they did not um, play both sides in that way in foreign policy. Yeah. The Russians learned this from the CIA. Hmm. And so I'm not surprised at all that we're going to find Russian money and Russian bots, actually more Russian bots because the Russians don't have a lot of money all over the ideological spectrum. Sure. I mean, I, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, I kind of predicted that they would have like Black Lives Matter front groups try to get real Black Lives Matter groups to go fight alt-right groups fronted by false alt-right groups that are all bots. And the bots probably don't even know they're doing it because all they're trying to do is cause distraction. Right. Um, and so when you have organizations doing stuff like that and you have tangential ties – you know, like, oh, well, uh, Trump has a tie to Putin, and Putin was really in the KGB, so Trump has been a Soviet agent since 1987. <laughs> um, that 
does mirror this Judeo-Bolshevism stuff because the other thing that I'm going to say is there's a kernel of truth to some of it. Yeah. And with the Russia stuff, there's a kernel of truth on a low level to most of it. Yeah. It's the high-level stuff that I'm not so sure of. Um, but, you know... I just want I, I just I don't want to get people get people too complacent on thinking that only right wingers believe in crazy conspiracy theory BS because it's no no not the case no it's not but it, it looks very different at any rate than than left wing conspiracy theory right and so I, I just find that to be a fascinating um, phenomenon and I'm sure that I, I have to think about it a lot longer as to why that is but it is something that it occurs to me that Alex there is no sort of Alex Jones of the left that I could think of at least. Um, there, there isn't. I, I do. There kind of was in the aughts. Okay. But there isn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, and um, like I said, I mean, Matt Taibbi wrote a book about this, uh, about left-wing and right-wing conspiracy culture in the end of the Bush years. Oh, interesting. Um, look for that. So if people want to check that out, I mean, it's, it's really funny because Matt Taibbi's really funny. Um, so if you want something about this, it's kind of got a little bit of meat, but is going to make you laugh, particularly if you're in our age cohort. I don't know if young people get it, yeah, but you'll find it pretty amusing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, this cultural Marxism is just so fascinating, right? Because it, there is, if you say there's no truth to it, you're actually going to make the conspiracy theorists look good because there is a little bit. And if you say everyone who says it is really an anti-Semitic Nazi, that's not true either. Right. All right. Some people don't know the origins. Some people don't care. I mean, some people are anti-Semitic Nazis, you know, but I I, kind of highly doubt even a tenth of the people who use this term now really grok even its recent origins, much less its long-term ones. Yeah. No, I think it's a handy slur um, and enough famous people use it that it seems to give it some validity. And I think that's what we're down to, but there's a lot more to it there. Um, Derek, uh, as always, this was a great show. Uh, see folks, why we stuck it to one, one term this time. We knew this was going to go uh, quite a while. I really enjoy it. I learned a lot as always from this. We'll uh, keep these going. Uh, maybe we'll do a uh, standpoint epistemology here at some point uh, since you brought it up again. So, um, but yeah, um, the, those of you who are listening, if you've been enjoying these three episodes, by all means, uh, shoot us some ideas for some more we do have a little running list that are kind of divergent they're more conceptual than terminological but maybe we can adapt the series uh, as we go on here but can you throw me some of the ones that we have left because <laughs> um, yeah, there's like so more that we have left than have done on so. our original like so we have like microaggressions uh neo-marxism which seems to be a different thing social justice warrior warrior um political theology is one that you came out with um uh mccarthyism did we talk about mccarthyism i don't think so a little Uh, bit today but not yet yeah yeah so yeah there's a whole bunch of things out there that we haven't uh the tendency to call everything a a syndrome uh and uh and so forth for mine you know an annoyance of mine is to attach the term bro to uh to to a group that you don't like and i think that's interesting and to attach the term alt uh as a prefix to something that you don't like yeah, as well. Yeah, alt-left yeah. and brocialism. I've been <laughs> yeah. called both of those things, weirdly. <laughs> well, so sure. I responded with brocialism or brobarity. <laughs> very nice, very nice. <laughs> so, Derek, thanks so much. Uh, as always, yeah. it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And folks, if you're listening, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll, uh, we'll check you next time. Yeah.
Uh, 